Chapter Sixteen of Ruth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cynthia Lyons. Ruth by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell. Chapter Sixteen. Sally tells of her sweethearts and discourses on the duties of life. Sally and Miss Benson took it in turns to sit up, or rather they took it in turns to nod by the fire, for if Ruth was awake she lay very still in the moonlight calm of her sick-bed. That time resembled a beautiful August evening, such as I have seen. The white snowy rolling mist covers up under its great sheet all trees and meadows and tokens of earth, but it cannot rise high enough to shut out the heavens, which on such nights seem bending very near, and to be the only real and present objects, and so near, so real and present, did heaven and eternity and God seem to Ruth, as she lay encircling her mysterious holy child one night sally found out she was not asleep i'm a rare hand at talking folks to sleep said she i'll try on thee for thou must get strength by sleeping and eating what must i talk to thee about i wonder shall i tell thee a love story or a fairy story such as i've told master thurston many a time and many a time for all his father set his face again fairies and called it vain talking, or shall I tell you the dinner I once cooked when Mr. Harding, as was Miss Faith's sweetheart, came unlooked for, and we gnawed in the house but a neck of mutton, out of which I made seven dishes, all with a different name. Who was Mr. Harding? asked Ruth. Oh, he was a grand gentleman from Lunnon, as had seen Miss Faith, and had been struck by her pretty looks when she was out on a visit and came here to ask her to marry him. She said no, she would never leave Master Thurston, as could never marry. But she pined a deal after he went away. She kept up afore Master Thurston, but I seed her fretting, though I never let on that I did, for I thought she'd soonest get over it and be thankful at after she'd be the strength to do right. However, I've no business after to be talking of Miss Benson's concern. I'll tell you of my own sweethearts and welcome, or I'll tell you of the dinner, which was the grandest thing I ever did in my life. But I thought a Londoner should never think country folks knew nothing. And my word, I puzzled him with his dinner. I'm doubting whether to this day he knows whether what he was eating was fish, flesh, or fowl. Shall I tell you how I managed?' but Ruth said she would rather hear about Sally's sweethearts, much to the disappointment of the latter, who considered the dinner by far the greatest achievement. Well, you see, I don't know as I should call them sweethearts, for excepting John Rawson, who was shut up in a madhouse the next week, I never had what you may call a downright offer of marriage but once. But I had once, and so I may say I had a sweetheart. I was beginning to be afeard, though, for one likes to be axed. That's but civility, and I remember, after I had turned forty, 
and afore Jeremiah Dixon had spoken, I began to think John Rawson had perhaps not been so very mad, and that I done ill to lightly his offer as a madam's, if it was to be the only one I was ever to have. And I don't mean as I'd have had him, but I thought, if it was to come o'er again, I'd speak respectful of him to folk, and say it were only his way to go about on all fours, but that he was a sensible man in most things. However, I'd had my laugh, and so had others, at my crazy lover, and it was late now to set him up as a Solomon. However, I thought it would be no bad thing to be tried again, but I little thought the trial would come when it did. You see, Saturday night is a leisure night in counting-houses and such-like places, while it's the busiest of all for servants. Well, it was a Saturday night, and I'd my bay's apron on, and the tails of my bedgown pinned together behind, down on my knees, pipe-claying the kitchen, when a knock comes to the back door. Come in, says I, but it knocked again, as if it were too stately to open the door for itself. So I got up rather cross and opened the door, and there stood Jerry Dixon, Mr. Holt's head clerk, only he was not head clerk then. So I stood, stopping up the door, fancying he wanted to speak to Master, but he kind of pushed past me, and telling me somewhat about the weather, as if I could not see it for myself, he took a chair and sat down by the oven. Cool and easy, thought I meaning his self, not his place, which I knew must be pretty hot. Well, it seemed no use standing waiting for my gentleman to go. Not that he had much to say either. But he kept twirling his hat round and round, and smoothing the nap on it with the back of his hand. So at last I squatted down to my work, and thinks I, I shall be on my knees all ready if he puts up a prayer for I knew he was a Methody by bringing up, and he had only lately turned to Master's ways of thinking. And them Methodies are terrible hands at unexpected prayers when one least looks for him. I can't say I like their way of taking one by surprise, as it were, but then I'm Parish Clark's daughter, and could never demean myself to dissenting fashions, always save and accept Master Thurston's, bless him. However, I'd been caught once or twice unawares, so this time I thought I'd be up to it, and I moved a dry duster whenever I went to kneel upon in case he began when I were in a wet place. By and by, I thought, if the man would pray it would be a blessing, for it would prevent his sending his eyes after me wherever I went, for when they takes to praying they shuts their eyes and quivers the lids in a queer kind of way them dissenters does. I can speak pretty plain to you, for you're bred in the church like myself, and must find it out of the way as I do to be among dissenting folk. God forbid I should speak disrespectful of Master Thurston and Miss Faith, though. I never think on them as church or dissenters, but just as Christians. But to come back to Jerry, first I tried always to be cleaning at his back, but when he wheeled round, so as always to face me, I thought I'd try a different game. So I says, Master Dixon, I ask your pardon, but I must pipe clay under your chair. Will you please to move? Well, he moved, and by and by I was at him again with the same words, and at after that again and again, till he 
were always moving about with his chair behind him, like a snail as carries its house on its back. And the great Gaupus never seed that I was pipe-claying the same places twice over. At last I got desperate cross. He were so in my way, so I made two big crosses on the tails of his brown coat, for, you see, wherever he went, up or down, he drew out the tails of his coat from under him, and stuck them through the bars of the chair, and flesh and blood could not resist pipe-claying them for him, and a pretty brushing he'd have, I reckon, to get it off again. Well, at length he clears his throat uncommon loud, so I spreads my duster and shuts my eyes all ready, but when naught comed of it, I open my eyes a little bit to see what he were about. My word, if there he wasn't down on his knees right facing me, staring as hard as he could. Well, I thought it would be hard work to stand that, if he made a long ado, so I shut my eyes again and tried to think serious, as became what I fancied were coming. But forgive me. But I thought, why couldn't the fellow go in and pray with Master Thurston, as had always a calm spirit ready for prayer, instead of me, who had my dresser to scour, let alone an apron to iron? At last, he says, says he, Sally, will you oblige me with your hand? So I thought it were maybe methody fashion, to pray hand in hand, and I'll not deny, but I'd wished I'd washed it better after black-letting the kitchen fire. I thought I'd better tell him it were not so clean as I could wish, so I says, Master Dixon, you shall have it, and welcome, if I may just go and wash him first. But, says he, my dear Sally, dirty or clean, it's all the same to me, seeing I'm only speaking in a figuring way. What I'm asking on my bended knees is that you'd please to be so kind as to be my wedded wife. Week after next will suit me, if it's agreeable to you. My word, I were up on my feet in an instant. It were odd now, weren't it? I never thought of taking the fellow and getting married, for all I'll not deny. I had been thinking it would be agreeable to be axed but all at once I couldn't abide the chap. Sir, says I, trying to look shamefaced as became the occasion, but for all that feeling a twittering round my mouth that I were afeard might end in a laugh. Master Dixon, I'm obliged to you for the compliment, and thank ye all the same, but I think I'd prefer a single life. He looked mighty taken aback, but in a minute he cleared up and was as sweet as ever. He still kept on his knees, and I wished he'd take himself up, but, I reckon, he thought it would give force to his words. Says he, Think again, my dear Sally, of a four-roomed house and furniture conformable and eighty pound a year. You may never have such chance again. There were truth enough in that, but it was not pretty in the man to say it, and it put me up a bit. As for that, neither you nor I can tell, Master Dixon, you're not the first chap as I've had down on his knees afore me, asking me to marry him. You see, I was thinking of John Rawson, only I thought there were no need to say he were on all fours. It were truth, he were on his knees, you know. And maybe you'll not be the last. Anyhow, I've no wish to change my condition just now. I'll wait till Christmas, says he. 
I've a pig as will be ready for killing then, so I must get married before that. Well, now, would you believe it? The pig was a temptation. I'd a receipt for curing hams, as Miss Faith would never let me try, saying the old way were good enough. However, I resisted. Says I, very stern, because I felt I'd been wavering. Master Dixon, once for all, pig or no pig, I'll not marry you. And if you'll take my advice, you'll get up off your knees. The flags is but damp yet, and it would be an awkward thing to have rheumatiz just before winter. With that he got up, stiff enough. He looked as sulky a chap as ever I clapped eyes on. And as he was so black and cross, I thought I'd done well, whatever came of the pig, to say no to him. You may live to repent this, says he very red. But I'll not be hard upon ye. I'll give you another chance. I'll let you have the night to think about it, and I'll call in to hear your second thoughts after chapel to-morrow. Well, now, did ever you hear the like? But that is the way with all of them men, thinking so much of theirselves, and that it's but ask and have. They've never had me, though, and I shall be sixty-one next Martinmas so there's not much time left for them to try me, I reckon. Well, when Jeremiah said that he put me up more than ever, and I says my first thoughts, second thoughts, and third thoughts is all one and the same, you've but tempted me once, and that was when you spoke of your pig. But of yourself you're nothing to boast on, and so I'll bid you good night, and I'll keep my manners, or else, if I told the truth, I should say it had been a great loss of time listening to you. But I'll be civil, so good night. He never said a word, but went off as black as thunder, slamming the door after him. The master called me into prayers, but I can't say I could put my mind to them, for my heart was beating so. However, it was a comfort to have had an offer of holy matrimony and though it flustered me, it made me think more of myself. In the night I began to wonder if I'd not been cruel and hard to him. You see, I were feverish-like, and the old song of Barbary Allen would keep running in my head, and I thought I were Barbary, and he were young Jemmy Gray, and that maybe he'd die for love of me, and I pictured him to myself, lying on his deathbed, with his face turned to the wall, with deadly sorrow sighing, and I could have pinched myself for having been so like cruel Barbary Allen. And when I got up next day I found it hard to think on the real Jerry Dixon I had seen the night before, apart from the sad and sorrowful Jerry I thought on a-dying, when I were between sleeping and waking. And for many a day I turned sick when I heard the passing bell, for I thought it were the bell loud knelling which were to break my heart with a sense of what I'd missed in saying no to Jerry, and so idling him with cruelty. But in less than a three-week I heard parish bells a-ringing merrily for a wedding, and in the course of the morning someone says to me, Hark, how the bells is ringing for Jerry Dixon's wedding! And 
all on a sudden he changed back again from a heartbroken young fellow like jemmy gray into a stout middle-aged man ruddy-complexioned with a wart on his left cheek like life sally waited for some exclamation at the conclusion of her tale but receiving none she stepped softly to the bedside and there lay ruth peaceful as death with her baby on her breast i thought i'd lost some of my gifts if i could not talk a body to sleep said sally in a satisfied and self-complacent tone youth is strong and powerful and makes a hard battle against sorrow so ruth strove and strengthened and her baby flourished accordingly and before the little celandines were out on the hedge banks or the white violets had sent forth their fragrance from the border under the south wall of miss benson's small garden ruth was able to carry her baby into that sheltered place on sunny days she often wished to thank mr benson and his sister but she did not know how to tell the deep gratitude she felt and therefore she was silent but they understood her silence well one day as she watched her sleeping child she spoke to miss benson with whom she happened to be alone do you know of any cottage where the people are clean and where they would not mind taking me in asked she taking you in what do you mean said miss benson dropping her knitting in order to observe ruth more closely i mean said ruth where i might lodge with my baby any very poor place would do only it must be clean or he might be ill and what in the world do you want to go and lodge in a cottage for asked miss benson indignantly ruth did not lift up her eyes but she spoke with a firmness which showed that she had considered the subject i think i could make dresses i know i did not learn as much as i might but perhaps i might do for servants and people who are not particular servants are as particular as any one said miss benson glad to lay hold of the first objection that she could well somebody who would be patient with me said ruth nobody is patient over an ill-fitting gown put in miss benson there's the stuff spoilt and what not perhaps i could find plain work to do said ruth very meekly that i could do very well mamma taught me and i like to learn from her if you would be so good miss benson you might tell people that i could do plain work very neatly and punctually and cheaply you'd get sixpence a day perhaps said miss benson and who would take care of baby i should like to know prettily he'd be neglected would he not why he'd have the croup and the typhus fever in no time and be burnt to ashes after i have thought of all look how he sleeps hush darling for just at this point he began to cry and to show his determination to be awake as if in contradiction to his mother's words ruth took him up and carried him about the room while she went on speaking yes just now i know he will not sleep but very often he will and in the night he always does and so you'd work in the night and kill yourself and leave your poor baby an orphan ruth i'm ashamed of you now brother mr benson had just come in is this not too bad of ruth here she is planning to go away and leave us just as we as i at least have grown so fond of baby and he's beginning to know me where were you thinking of going to ruth interrupted mr benson with mild surprise 
anywhere to be near you and Miss Benson, in any poor cottage where I might lodge very cheaply, and earn my livelihood by taking in plain sewing, and perhaps a little dressmaking, and where I could come and see you and dear Miss Benson sometimes and bring baby. If he were not dead before then of some fever, or burn, or scald, poor neglected child, or you had not worked yourself to death with never sleeping, said Miss Benson. Mr. Benson thought a minute or two, and then he spoke to Ruth. "'Whatever you may do when this little fellow is a year old, and able to dispense with some of a mother's care, let me beg you, Ruth, as a favour to me, and a still greater favour to my sister. Is it not, Faith?' "'Yes, you may put it so, if you like.' "'To stay with us,' continued he, "'till then. When baby is twelve months old, we'll talk about it again.' and very likely before then some opening may be shown us. Never fear leading an idle life, Ruth. We'll treat you as a daughter, and set you all the household tasks, and it is not for your sake that we ask you to stay, but for this little dumb helpless child's, and it is not for our sake that you must stay, but for his. Ruth was sobbing. I do not deserve your kindness, said she in a broken voice. I do not deserve it. Her tears fell fast and soft like summer rain, but no further word was spoken. Mr. Benson quietly passed on to make the inquiry for which he had entered the room. But when there was nothing to decide upon, and no necessity for entering upon any new course of action, Ruth's mind relaxed from its strung-up state. She fell into trains of reverie and mournful, regretful recollections which rendered her languid and tearful. This was noticed both by Miss Benson and Sally, and, as each had kind sympathies, and felt depressed when they saw any one near them depressed, and as each, without much reasoning on the cause or reason for such depression, felt irritated at the uncomfortable state into which they themselves were thrown, they both resolved to speak to Ruth on the next fitting occasion. Accordingly, one afternoon, the morning of that day had been spent by Ruth in housework, for she had insisted on Mr. Benson's words, and had taken Miss Benson's share of the more active and fatiguing household duties, but she went through them heavily and as if her heart was far away. In the afternoon, when she was nursing her child, Sally, on coming into the back parlour, found her there alone, and easily detected the fact she was crying. "'Where's Miss Benson?' asked Sally gruffly. "'Gone out with Mr. Benson,' answered Ruth, with an absent sadness in her voice and manner. Her tears scarce checked while she spoke, began to fall afresh, and as Sally stood and gazed, she saw the babe look back in his mother's face, and his little lip begin to quiver, and his open blue eye to grow overclouded, as with some mysterious sympathy, with a sorrowful face bent over him. Ruth took him briskly from his mother's arms. Ruth looked up in grave surprise for in truth she had forgotten Sally's presence, and the suddenness of the motion startled her. "'Bonnie boy, are they letting the salt tears drop on thy sweet face before thou art weaned? Little somebody knows how to be a mother, 
I could make a better myself. Dance, Thumpkin, dance, dance, ye merry men, every one. Ay, that's it. Smile, my pretty. Anyone but a child like thee, continued she, turning to Ruth, would have known better than to bring ill luck on thy baby by letting tears fall on its face before it was weaned. But thou art not fit to have a baby, and so I've said many a time, I've a great mind to buy thee a doll and take thy baby myself. Sally did not look at Ruth, for she was too engaged in amusing the baby with the tassel of the string to the window-blind, or else she would have seen the dignity which the mother's soul put into Ruth at that moment. Sally was quelled into silence by the gentle composure, the self-command over her passionate sorrow, which gave to Ruth an unconscious grandeur of demeanour as she came up to the old servant. "'Give him back to me, please. I did not know it brought ill luck, or if my heart broke I would not have let a tear drop on his face. I never will again. Thank you, Sally.' as the servant relinquished him to her who came in the name of a mother. Sally watched Ruth's grave, sweet smile as she followed up Sally's play with the tassel, and imitated with all the docility inspired by love every movement and sound which had amused her babe. "'Thou'lt be a mother after all,' said Sally, with a kind of admiration of the control which Ruth was exercising over herself. But why talk of heart-breaking? I don't question thee about what's past and gone, but now thou'rt wanting for nothing, nor thy child either. The time to come is the Lord's, and in his hands, and yet thou goest about a-sighing and a-moaning in a way that I can't stand or thole. What do I do wrong? said Ruth. I try to do all I can. Yes, in a way, said Sally, puzzled to know how to describe her meaning. Thou dost it. But there's a right and a wrong way of setting about everything, and to my thinking the right way is to take a thing up heartily, if it is only making a bed. Why, dear, ah me, making a bed may be done after a Christian fashion, I take it, or else what's to come of such as me in heaven, who've had little enough time on earth for clapping ourselves down on our knees for set prayers. When I was a girl, and wretched enough about Master Thurston, and the crook on his back which came of the fall I gave him, I took to praying and sighing, and giving up the world, and I thought it were wicked to care for the flesh, so I made heavy puddings, and was careless about dinner, and the rooms, and thought I was doing my duty, though I did call myself a miserable sinner. But one night the old Mrs. Master Thurston's mother, came in and sat down by me, as I was scolding myself, without thinking of what I was saying, and says she, Sally, what are you blaming yourself about, and groaning over? We hear you in the parlour every night, and it makes my heart ache. Oh, ma'am, says I, I'm a miserable sinner, and I'm travailing in the new birth. Was that the reason, says she, why the pudding was so heavy to-day? Oh, ma'am, ma'am, said I, if you would not think of the things of the flesh, but trouble yourself about your immortal soul. And I sat a-shaking my head to think about her soul. But, says she, in her sweet dropping voice, I do try to think of my soul every hour of the day, if by that you mean trying to do the will of God. But we'll talk now about the pudding. 
Master Thurston could not eat it, and I know you'll be sorry for that. Well, I was sorry, but I didn't choose to say so, as she seemed to expect me. So I says, it's a pity to see children brought up to care for things of the flesh. And then I could have bitten my tongue out, for the missus looked so grave, and I thought of my darling little lad pining for his want of his food. At last, says she, Sally, do you think God has put us into the world just to be selfish and do nothing but see after our own souls, or to help one another with heart and hand, as Christ did to all who wanted help? I was silent, for, you see, she puzzled me. So she went on. What is that beautiful answer in your church catechism, Sally? I was pleased to hear a dissenter, as I did not think would have done it, speak so knowledgeably about the catechism and she went on to do my duty in that station of life unto which it shall please god to call me well your station is a servant and it is as honourable as a king's if you look at it right and you are to help and serve others in one way just as a king is to help others in another now what way are you to help and serve or to do your duty in that station in life unto which it has pleased God to call you. Did it answer God's purpose and serve him when the food was unfit for a child to eat and unwholesome for any one? Well, I would not give it up. I was so pig-headed about my soul. So, says I, I wish folks would be content with locusts and wild honey and leave other folks in peace to work out their salvation." and I groaned out pretty loud to think of Mrs.'s soul. I often think, since she smiled a bit at me, but she said, "'Well, Sally, to-morrow you shall have time to work out your salvation, but as we have no locusts in England, and I don't think they'd agree with Master Thurston if we had, I will come and make the pudding, but I shall try to do it well.' not only for him to like it, because everything may be done in a right way or a wrong. The right way is to do it as well as we can, as in God's sight. The wrong is to do it in a self-seeking spirit, which either leads us to neglect it, to follow out some device of our own for our own ends, or to give up too much time and thought to it, both before and after the doing." Well, I thought of old Missus's words this morning when I saw you making the beds. You sighed so. You could not half shake the pillows. Your heart was not in your work. And yet it was the duty God had set you, I reckon. I know it's not the work parsons preach about, though I don't think they go so far off the mark when they read, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, that do with all thy might. Just try for a day to think of all the odd jobs as to be done well and truly in God's sight, not just slurred over anyhow, and you'll go through them twice as cheerfully, and have no thought to spare for sighing or crying. Sally bustled off to set on the kettle for tea, and felt half ashamed, in the quiet of the kitchen, to think of the oration she had made in the parlour, but she saw with much satisfaction that henceforward Ruth nursed her boy with a vigour and cheerfulness that were reflected back from him, and the household work was no longer performed with a languid indifference, as if life and duty were distasteful. 
Miss Benson had her share in this improvement, though Sally placidly took all the credit to herself. One day, as she and Ruth sat together, Miss Benson spoke of the child, and thence went on to talk about her own childhood. By degrees they spoke of education, and the book-learning that forms one part of it, and the result was that Ruth determined to get up early all through the bright summer mornings to acquire the knowledge hereafter to be given her child. Her mind was uncultivated by reading scant. Beyond the mere mechanical arts of education she knew nothing, but she had a refined taste and excellent sense and judgment to separate the true from the false. With these qualities she set to work under Mr. Benson's directions. She read in the early morning the books that he had marked out. She trained herself with strict perseverance to do all thoroughly. She did not attempt to acquire any foreign language, although her ambition was to learn Latin in order to teach it to her boy. Those summer mornings were happy for she was learning neither to look backwards nor forwards, but to live faithfully and earnestly in the present. She rose while the hedge-sparrow was yet singing his revel to his mate. She dressed and opened her window, shading the soft blowing air and the sunny eastern light from her baby. If she grew tired, she went and looked at him, and all her thoughts were holy prayers for him. Then she would gaze a while out of the high upper window on to the moorlands that swelled in waves one behind the other in the grey, cool morning light. These were her occasional relaxations, and after them she returned with strength to her work. End of chapter 16